Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet, playwright, host of this show. This is going to be episode number 156. It's another classic spotlight series, Thoughts on Rod Serling. Not too much uh, more distinctive of a theme of a show, of any show, by the way, uh, than the theme for The Twilight Zone. Um, I'm not going to make it a habit of bringing lots of sounds on the show, <laughs> uh, but I just thought that in this particular case, it just it just warranted it. It kind of brings you uh, back home in your own mind to, to the show and, and, and you know to his distinctive uh, presence in it. He was always in the corner somewhere on one of those shows uh, narrating something deeper in importance, often with a cigarette in his mouth. And we'll, we'll talk about that on the show as well. Now, this show on Rod Sterling, to me, uh, is not just a, an artistic show. I, I have some other, some other reasons for it as well. Some of them are, are personal, uh, some of them are artistic, and some of them just uh, creative. So there's a little bit of everything involved in it. It's, to me, it's a very special show. I've been wanting to do this for probably as long as I've, I've started the show, but I had some reasons why I wanted to wait, and it's just now the time to do that. Now, just like the rest of you, you know, I caught an episode or two when I was younger of The Twilight Zone, and it just it, it just stuck with me, and it never, it never really left me, because if you think about it, there was simply nothing like it on television. I know later on they came out with a competitive series called The Outer Limits, and they did some things that I would guess were similar, but there's just no way The Outer Limits can compete with both the, the emotional, ethical, and even the moral dimensions of The Twilight Zone. It simply wasn't wasn't possible on anybody else's uh, front but, but Rod Sterling's. Let's talk a little bit about him, okay? Now, Rod Sterling is born... All right, in 1924 in Syracuse, New York. All right, he's born of a Jewish family, although throughout his entire life he doesn't really identify as a Jew, meaning he doesn't really practice Judaism in a religious fashion. In fact, he winds up joining the Unitarian Church, and this is where he marries the, uh, the, the woman that he met in college, Carol, and they stayed married in, until, his, uh, until his death in 1975. But he did on many occasions, write about anti-Semitism. I experienced it some of the times, even in Hollywood, and there's some of the things he was trying to do, and we'll talk about that. So it's unusual. Uh, but sometimes uh, when you're a Jewish person, you don't always have to practice Judaism, and still you're going to have people out there that are going to be bigoted. 
Uh, it's just how folks uh, unfortunately are. And remember, this was a man that was operating in the 1950s where all kinds of things were going on. Oftentimes, during that time where they were hunting communists, I mean, they were often either purposely or, or accidentally confusing them with with Jews and other minorities to, to mix them all together in some kind of evil formula that's going to destroy the world. And a lot of those things he talked about on his show, particularly in his writing. Now, Rod Serling is very uh, uh, particularly uh, interesting in the sense that he didn't really write a novel or uh, even a short story or anything. He only worked in the teleplay for television or the screenplay. And we'll talk about that as well. Many people who are listening to the show here don't even realize that he also wrote a number of screenplays besides The Twilight Zone. A lot of people don't know that. And when they hear those these uh, uh, movies and, and, and the fact that he's behind it, they're going to be pretty amazed and, and maybe even a little bit, uh, you know, shocked by it. But Because uh, it's only so many things that are really known about him or his personal life. So we're going to talk about all of that. Now, when the book came out about him, it was one of the real first biographies about him. Okay? It was called uh, Rod Sterling, The Dreams and the Nightmares, A Life in the Twilight Zone. That was what it was called. Right. I came home from the Air Force. It was only but a few years later this book came out. I was already a subscriber to the Twilight Zone magazine that was run by his uh, by his wife, Carol, for many years. She kept the business going. Unfortunately, another thing I'm not really known about him is he had, um, he had built up so much debt with his production company because it was expensive to put together the Twilight Zone. And... Um, Rod Sterling, in, in an interesting and ironic fashion, owned the rights to his show, had his own production company that made that show, and then he sold that show to the um, to the networks. And uh, sometimes that wasn't a profitable venture for him, believe it or not. And then when it became big enough, that was all wonderful, but at that point he had finished his run after five years. So he didn't realize that his show was going to endure it for, I don't know, forever. I honestly think we're going to be on Pluto one day and we'll still be watching The Twilight Zone. I mean, that's how enduring it is. But he didn't realize that. He always thought that he was writing for his time and he didn't realize that he was writing in a timeless fashion. Um, and we'll talk about that as well and why he thought that way. So he sold the rights. And unfortunately, um, probably without realizing it threw away like hundreds of millions of dollars that his estate would have gotten because that's how valuable this show was. Where the opposite, uh, where Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek, never did such a thing and the estate was able to continue on making the movies, other TV shows, and they always got a cut of that action forever with Paramount, which was NBC. This was CBS with him. And uh, so it just didn't work that way. He figured, hey, I know they're going to do the reruns. I know that show's going to go on for a while that way. Let me just grab some money from them now. At least I can pay off my debt, pay off the rest of my uh, my crew, get some more money for myself, get a little financial security, and I'll go do a couple other shows, maybe write a movie or something. I think he went to um, uh, teach at, at a college upstate New York for about a year, teach creative writing and all of that, and he even did some speaking tours around colleges. So he wanted to do something a little bit different, sort of freshen himself up and, you know, kind of regain his juices again. Uh, he was writing five years straight. I think of the hundred and, um, 156 episodes of, of, of Twilight Zone, he wrote 92 himself personally. So 
12 hours a day. So this was a man that was uh, under pressure, always, always writing, trying to get out of his thoughts. Now, who was Rod Serling? Besides being a, a Jewish kid who loved Binghamton, New York, where he was uh, raised at, okay? And he loved the Jewish community there. It was a very uh, tight-knit Jewish community. So he didn't um, experience where other Jews had experienced amicentism because he, until he went to until I think until he went to college and then later on when he became uh, somebody uh, as a more of a Hollywood fixture. Uh, so he grew up in a, a community that was already Jewish and you know everyone was pretty much like him. And to me, uh, I always felt that he, he was very happy there and he always seemed to reflect upon that. You see it in a lot of his writing. And even a lot of his interviews, he talked about that. It was a fond memory, moment for him or fond years for him because the rest of his life wasn't so fond. And we'll, of course, talk about that. So, whereas sometimes a writer becomes a social writer because they have had certain distresses in their lives or certain inequalities in their lives, certain things that have pushed them, whether it be a disability or, or, or racial or religious prejudice or, or poverty or something like that that often can push a creative person into that direction, Rod Sterling, for some reason, naturally came to this. He didn't have those experiences. Remember, he wasn't poor. They wasn't rich, but he wasn't poor. A middle-class Jewish family, amongst other people, he had a very happy childhood. But for some reason, he had that eye to see things that were differently and wanted to see the world differently. So he was always interested in the arts, always interested in creative things and acting in the theater. Uh, later on, he went into the debate college. He got involved in, in boxing. And when he when he wound up joining in the military, uh, he didn't do so well in it, but it was something that he knew he liked it. Uh, Rod Sterling was one of the, the few, I would say, original kind of creative men uh, and I use men because, you know, he was a man and I'm a man and I can I can appreciate this, that didn't allow his intellect or his creative abilities to stop himself from being a man. He'll punch you out if he had to. And uh, he was that kind of a guy. He didn't play around. He wasn't some reckless, uh, you know, temper, an ill-tempered kind of fellow, but he didn't play any games either. He was a pretty serious fellow about that. So he winds up later on joining in the army. Uh, World War II is about to kick in here. And he gets shipped off to um, the Pacific where he fought in a number of campaigns in the Philippines. These were campaigns that were so harsh that they called his unit the Death Squad because nearly 50% of everybody in the unit was dying on a regular basis. So Rod Sterling was in a situation where he's constantly in combat Constantly seeing friends die. He had a friend that uh, that literally got his head decapitated just through an accident because a food crate was dropped from a plane and, and hit his head and, and knocked his head off. But he was seeing all kinds of people die from the Japanese and the brutal combat they had. And then a, a new fresh of recruits coming in and they're dying. Um, Rod Sterling uh, won the uh, the bronze heart for his bravery and uh, excuse me the bronze star for his bravery he gets a purple heart from being injured a number of times a number of other pacific campaigns from the army so he left out there uh, a, a a tough fellow um a, certainly a brave fellow doing his part for his country as, as a veteran but this is what began the twilight zone 
The Twilight Zone isn't some creative, cool moniker that he came up with because, you know, it sounds it sounds hip and slick for the Hollywood people so he can get his show going on. No, the Twilight Zone is what they used to call shell shock, what we now call post-traumatic disorder, depression from, from traumatic experiences. He called it that, and he nicknamed it that for years because... He'd wake up in the middle of the night, he had sweats, he had bad dreams, he thought the Japanese were coming for him his entire life. He told his daughter this, he told his wife this, this is what he had to live with. Remember, this was not something that people confessed to too many other people back in those days. Mental illness of any sort was was considered a serious stigma. You might not have gotten even hired if you had said something like this. So it was his secret. But this is how the Twilight Zone was created from a man who was a hero who served his country and wound up becoming a mental uh, casualty in a way of such this war and had to deal with that his entire life. And so I could certainly appreciate that as a vet and who's gone through a, a similar circumstance. So I always felt in many ways uh, when I learned more about Rod Sterling and the fact that he was writing and he also got married and, and had a family as well. I, I felt there's so many different connections to him, more so than other writers. Unfortunately, so many writers that I've admired that they've died already. Most of them have died before you know, I was uh, born, with the exception of Harlan Ellison, who died later on while I was alive. And I got at least a chance to meet him twice while he, he was still with us. Uh, Rod Sterling died 10 years after I was born, so I was still watching the reruns of his show well after he was dead. And of course, I was still a subscriber of his magazine. So, I come back from the from the Air Force a couple of years later. I see that book has come out. And I'm like, oh man, I gotta get this book. But I want to do more than this book. I want to write something about this book. I want to do a review. I just came off doing a big big book review of a, a pretty a famous Japanese uh, poet who wound up being on the shortlist for the Nobel Prize. I got that published by uh, a big uh, Canadian magazine. So I, I, and this is really before the internet was starting to really take off. It was, still wasn't all that popular, but it was starting to come out there. They had their magazine um, online, uh, uh, as well as the print edition. So I got both of those. So I didn't even know how to go about it. A lot of the publishing houses back in the, even the early 90s didn't even have an email address or even a, an actual website or anything. It was just simply that straight, regular print publication. That stuff didn't come out until later for a lot of people. So I, I saw the, um, the little, little blurb about the book that was coming out in the newspaper, and I said, oh, heck with this. So I, 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 get, the, I get the phone book over in, in New York when I went over there, and I found the uh, the phone number for the for the uh, publishing house, and I called them when I went back home to Jersey. And they answered, and they said, "Listen, I, I wrote this, and I like to do a review for my newspaper about this book, about Rod Sterling's book. I like you to send me a review copy." You know, you know, and those print books are just like they are today. They were never cheap. I think it was eighteen or twenty dollars. So one of the great things about writing a review for a book that you really admire is you get it for free. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy because a lot of times you don't get paid for this. You do in some instances, but I wasn't interested. I just wanted to do the book so so bad. And they're like, yes, we'll send it to you. So they sent it to me. And I'm like, wow, this is great. So I started checking out the book. But in the meantime, 
I don't know why, but I decided to, I dropped a little note over uh, to uh, to the Twilight Zone people because I subscribed for another year. And in my subscription, I dropped a little note. Hey, by the way, I'm reviewing Sterling's uh, new uh, uh, autobiography about him and everything. So I'm just so excited about everything. I don't know. I was like a giddy kid. I'm telling you. I mean, yeah, I guess I still was a kid. I was, I think it was only like 24 or 25. And compared to being 55, this this seemed like another life ago. I tell you. But um, I did that, right? So I get back not even a week later. Okay, I get back. I get back a letter. And I thought it was really odd because the letter is in an envelope from the from the Twilight Zone. It has that Twilight Zone print on it. But I'm like, I've never seen this before. I open it up. And not only is it a renewal letter of uh, my Twilight Zone subscription, there's a note in it, a personal note. And it says, and I'll quote you exactly this. I mean, I, I remember it, but still, I'd like to make sure I'm totally accurate over here. It says, consider it all, comma, please. Period. And it was signed, Carol Serling. So, I had always known from reading the masthead of the magazine that she was deeply involved in it. But I honestly thought it was just in the legal fashion of, you know, making sure that her husband's estate was still making some income for the family. You know, he still had kids and her. And, uh, you know, he died young. And um, I think he was at 50 when he died. So he died young. And um, I didn't realize that she was in that involved in it. So it just it never occurred to me she was actually reading the mail and would jot me a note. So at the time I read the note, consider it all, please. I'm like, okay. I, to me, it was cryptic. I didn't even know what she was even talking about. And the reason why I didn't know about it is because some of the things I'm telling you now, when I learned back then, I had no idea at all. A lot about Rod Sterling was a mystery to people. Not because he kept anything from anybody. Not because he had a secret life. Nobody really wrote about him until this book came out. So there was a lot that people didn't know about him at all. When he gave interviews, which he did a lot, and which he did a lot of college speeches, including his own alma mater, he talked about the industry of television but and the creativity, but he talked about it in the social aspect of things. It's all that he ever truly talked about. It's all he really ever cared about. And... So you read that, you're like, okay, I got it. This guy was interested in defeating prejudice and trying to bring people together and talking about all kinds of, you know, bigotry and, and, and crazy silliness out there. And, and people just, because he understood about war. He understood about discrimination. He understood about bigotry. He knew these things inside and out. He also knew about being called the angry man of Hollywood and having to always fight censorship and them messing with his ideas or him have to couch things. In, in, in fantasy or in fine science fiction at sometimes this is the reason why creatively Twilight Zone really fit what he was trying to do because not only did it speak to him personally about what he's still going through, the torments of the dreams and, and, and the nightmares and the depression, but also how you could fit everything inside a Twilight Zone because you can't just call it 
This is the fantasy show. This is the science fiction show. This is, you know, the uh, the macabre show. This is the horror show. This is speculative fiction show. Blah, blah, blah. You can get it all in there and it's still just be called a Twilight Zone. It was almost like, hell with these categories. I'm just going to make my own category because that's the only way I could fit everything I want to do. And that's pretty much what he did. That's why I say that it stands so far away from the Outer Limits. And I'm not saying this to put down the Outer Limits. They're just not in the same ballpark on any level. So, I was pretty much not only educated by this book and the things I learned later on, it was just a, a, a complete shock in many instances. And many instances, incredibly amazing, but also... It came to me why she said that. Then I understood. And I said to myself, even in the review, I'm not mentioning this. And I'm going to stay away from certain things until the, I, the day I feel I can really talk about those things. And now that it is. And one of the reasons why is because Carol Serling, who kept on his name and his estate and the business of Twilight Zone, she died uh, January of this year, 2020. So I, I feel more comfortable about talking about it than I would have done, you know, even leaving last year. Because some of the things that are necessary to talk about for us to have a greater understanding about who that man was, as complicated as he was, but also to be respectful uh, of, of him and, and of her and her memory. This is a, a woman that supported him in, in so many fashions. I mean, there's stills of them together in the radio studio when he first doing, done radio scripts. This is where he really started first. And then he found that wasn't appealing enough. He did some, some radio um, uh, marketing scripts. He did some commercial scripts for a number of uh, different products. It was a way to make some money. But he realized in the end that it was really the television that, that he needed to go to to get the kind of ideas he wanted to get across out there. And she was with him through all of that. Even when he quit a job where he was making decent money doing that to go now take a chance on, on, on this new form of creativity called, you know, the teleplay and, and television. And to fit, once you minus the commercials out, I think it's like 22 minutes you got to tell one hell of a tale. Now, the majority of the Twilight Zone episodes were half an hour shows. There was one season, I think it's the fourth season, where they did the hour shows. So you'll see some longer ones in there. But they went back to, on the fifth season, went in the final season, back to the half an hour again. So that's pretty much his format. And that's pretty much the format that he helped hire other writers to do as well. Remember, even though he did a great majority of them, there still was 8 and uh, 56. Uh, there's still uh, 60, uh, 64 shows that were done by other writers. But he did the majority of them himself. And most of them were the, were the half an hour format. Now. If you remember at all. Or if you don't remember. Or maybe you just need to refresh yourself. By watching the Twilight Zone again. Which isn't too hard to do. Every time we have a holiday. There's a Twilight Zone marathon. Oftentimes they run the entire five years. In a couple of days. It's literally done 24 hours a day. For a couple of days. So if you think about it. On the half an hour format. Just in one day, you can get about 48 episodes in. That's pretty amazing. So, it, you know, about three, four days, you can get everything in of, of all the shows for the most part. He dealt with a great deal of prejudice. In fact, 
That's one of his most important themes, not only in his writing, but in his life. And for the most part, even in some of his speeches and his quotes. And I'll give you one that I always found pretty, pretty astounding. Because I've been there. I went to I went to the concentration camp in Dachau. So I, again, I know exactly what the man is talking about. Oftentimes you'll hear him give some like pithy quote. Sometimes it has a humor in it. It'll be a dark humor to it. And the other times it had such gravity and such depth that it just blew you away. It's like, oh my God, this is deeper than the whole the whole show. And he's over there in the in the corner somewhere smoking a cigarette, hitting you with some deepness. I mean, no joke. Now here's a quote from one of his shows that he literally did in that corner. Okay? All the Dachau's must remain standing. The Dachau's, the Belsons, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitz, all of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it they shoveled all their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the grave diggers too. I find more than ever that that comment he made literally over 40 years ago has such incredible relevance now here in America where we have morons out there knocking down statues thinking they're doing something important, but they're not. It is so incredibly dangerous to a democracy, especially a democratic republic like America, to do this and try to delete history. You can't remove history even from the people that are bad. That's how you teach the next generation. How are you going to learn about slavery if all you're doing is trying to change all the history books and knocking down all the bad guys' statues? You could have one day where somebody says, I don't know what you're talking about. So many people have spent so much time not even talking about the Holocaust anymore. I'm shocked that there's teenagers out there that don't even know what ever happened. Now, you got professional deniers out there who are just immoral bigots. But I'm talking about people that don't even know that this occurred. I, I find it astounding that I'm even saying this. That people don't even know it occurred. So that kind of quote, it just shows you the gravity of what he was trying to say, what he was trying to do on his show, what he was trying to teach the world. How important that is to not get away from that. And people, sometimes we get too trapped up and this is where he didn't get trapped up in this, this symbolism. Don't get trapped up in that superficial nonsense. Oh, there's this um, slaveholder who was a bad guy in the Civil War. So let's knock his statue down because I'll feel more respectful. I don't feel respected with him up there. Really, why not? You ought to be laughing at him because we won. The right cause won. Every day you breathe it's a day of victory for you because his ideas did not win. Yours did. No one is saying that this guy is great. They're just having a statue over there because like everybody else, he fought in the war. He might have even done something locally in that, in that community. They want to put a statue up for them. It doesn't really mean anything bad. They're not trying to celebrate evil. It's just history. 
Maybe you can ask him to teach a little bit more about that so people know a little bit more about that character. If you think think it's that important, then that's great. But really, in the end, there's no harm done. You should have no fear of it over it. It certainly isn't any kind of vestal of, 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 of racism. It's history. And guess what? History is full of good and full of bad and full of all the people in between. That's what history it is. It's not Hollywood where you get to scrub things and make everybody look good. History is messy. History is bloody. But history, once we learn about it, and once we understand it, we can step forward. Not only in the present, but in the future because we know what happened before. We know enough to maybe do our best to not let happen again. But if you know anything about communism or Russia... They spent decades racing, literally erasing history. Literally, you fall out of favor and they literally delete your picture out of a photograph to where you're not longer existing anymore. Nobody can save your name. They remove your, your name from the from the birth certificate rolls and the registries and the photographs. And they can't you say your name anymore. Suddenly, nobody even remembers you. Imagine that. In 10 years time, it's like you never existed. That's what a government can do. That's what a society can do if it's allowed to get carried away in that manner. That's why history is so important. Sometimes history can be the most important thing that not only keeps us together, but kind of keeps us sane. I don't know how you know where to go in the future if you don't have an idea of what your past is. And this is what he was trying to tell us. Twilight Zone. Full of those social messages. A lot, a lot of war episodes too. You'll notice that a lot of them set in World War II. Oftentimes, he he took a lot from the combat he had and the experiences he had, and I'm sorry to say, the experiences he still had as he was putting the show together. By the time this man was putting the show together, the war had already ended for like 13 years, and in his dreams and in his nightmares. In his life, he was still dealing with it. Still, in many instances, fighting it. Thank God he didn't um, succumb to alcohol or drugs. Even though he was quite a drinker. But he wasn't somebody they considered a problem about that. Mainly because he was pretty much a workaholic. And if you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe or anybody else he accused of these sort of things. Well, guess what? They can't be that much of drinkers and be that prolific at all. It's just not possible. If you know anything about creativity. So. But thankfully he didn't go any to those addictions. Part of it is because of his uh, family. He loved his family. He was one of those few writers that you can actually mention. In all honesty. That made that a priority as much as his creativity. And he didn't fail to do so. And it's another thing I admired about him. I know how difficult that can that can be. Right? From, from my own personal experience to, to, to these days. I'll tell you. Now, if there's any darkness about Rod Serling, you could find it probably in the fact that as he's constantly dealing with his depression, he's hoping that he could write it out of his system, his own form of therapy. And, you know, he often did rely on alcohol, but unfortunately, Rod Serling was somebody that had a lot of dalliances, unfortunately. I'm not the guy to tell you this guy is good looking, this guy is not good looking. I mean, that's not my job and certainly not my talent. But um, I guess it's not hard to say, uh, 
you know, you become famous, you win Emmys, people know who you are, you're an outspoken fellow. You know, you've seen photographs of him. He's certainly not a fellow that looks like he would scare away women. So, unfortunately, uh, he came into that trap. I always wondered, and I never wanted to be cavalier about it, but I always wondered if that's what she was talking about when she asked me to consider it all, that I look at everything before I call this guy a name or make fun of this guy or, or be judgmental of this fellow, and I'm not. Not that I have a, a true understanding of, of why somebody steps out like that, because I really don't. And I've never, on a personal basis, done that or even appreciated that kind of behavior. I just don't. Maybe maybe I'm a prude, I don't care, but just never never appreciate that. In me, I always felt that if you can go in it openly, then you can leave it openly. You don't need to, to, to screw up the vows in, in the meantime. People do it all the time. You can just leave. They don't have to ruin which should be an oath and until, you know, you're done with it. But nevertheless, that's what that, that fellow got involved in. I'm sure, without trying to make any excuses from anyone, uh, that some of that had to do with him dealing with depression and pressure and all the things that he was dealing with in many instances. You know, when when you're a writer, especially in, in, in his particular field, I mean, you're dealing with corporate sponsors, giving him all kinds of hassles, about the racial overtones of, of his work, about the social implications of his work. I mean, one time he he mentioned something into his script about a match, and the 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 uh, the commercial um, sponsor of, of Twilight Zone is like, "Listen, you need to take that crap out now." I'm Ronson. I'm a lighter producer. I can't be talking about matches on this show. I'm trying to sell some damn lighters here. That's literally what he had to do. Oh my God, I got to take that out. I mean, so they were not playing around. Sponsorship in the world of Rod Serling in the 1950s was not the same as they are now. Now, a show gets controversial, they risk that they can lose the sponsor. The other way, it was that's, that's different. Back then, it was an entirely different way. The sponsor paid for the show. If you did something dumb, they're literally having somebody out there to the, to the damn studio. Hey, just by the way, uh, how about you stop this crap or we're going to just walk away? That's how it used to be back then. So they had a, a real say in how things went, how things were, were said. And that's why he had to do a lot of couching and science fiction and horror and fantasy and all kinds of different things. I think one time he had a, a, an episode where he had a Jewish person lynched instead of a black person because he couldn't do that, even though that actually was happening during the time he's doing the show in the South. So... There was so much stuff he had to simply allude to or allegory or all of that just because those are the things he was up to. So imagine you're dealing with all that. You're dealing with your own demons from World War II. You're dealing with all kinds of depression. You're dealing with exhaustion. You still got a family you got to contend with and a wife. So And, and of course, you're drinking to do whatever you can to, to kill whatever pain is left. I guess, uh, you know, slipping over the, to a, another woman now and then probably seemed like practically standard fare for him probably seemed like just like dropping another pill or some other way to to escape for a little while i mean again i'm not excusing what probably amounted to meaningless sex but nevertheless he was involved in a lot of that unfortunately i don't know if that's the darkest side of rod Sterling, but i'm sure that i certainly couldn't help the situation very much but he's not the first one to fall for that in, in Hollywood. And 
uh, to this day, as we know, it's certainly not going to be the last. Now, Sterling became enormously successful through the Twilight Zone years. And from there, he was able to do a number of things in film that most people never got a chance to do. Just groundbreaking things. Uh, the first one, and a lot of people don't realize this. To this day, you tell somebody, they go, what? That was him? Uh, yes, that was him. Planet of the Apes. Now, that was written by uh, a French novelist, uh, Pierre Boulet, and he also wrote uh, The Bridge of the River Kwai. He was another person dealing with post-traumatic stress. Um, he had a much more, um, I guess you could say, colorful backstory than Rod Sterling in the sense that he's, a, he's, in, the, um, he's in the French service. He winds up getting captured by the, the VC French, uh, if you know historically what that means, that means those are the French people dedicated to the Nazi uh, takeover of Europe. And they wind up beating him up and torturing him for two years in jail to the point of starvation, all kinds of horrible things he had to go through. Until the war was over, he was stuck literally in, in like a like a jail slash concentration camp. So he wrote Planet of the Apes. Now, he wrote Planet of the Apes differently than how Rod Sterling had formed the screenplay of that novel. Sterling went in a slightly different direction. Now, don't get me wrong. The story is not radically changed at all. It's still pretty much the same story, just with a couple of major exceptions. First exception being that it... um, And i, I got to reveal the endings of this, so I'm sorry. If you haven't watched this Planet of the Ace by now, I don't know, maybe you could shut off the show and watch it quickly and come back to the show. Or, you know, just be mad at me and, you know, take a number, okay? <laughs> but um, he had a, he had an ending on that in his screenplay that lets you know that in the end of all of this that went by, that we're actually on Earth, which is such a shocking ending, truly, truly dramatic, where it was not the same in the novel. They actually went to a different planet where they were evolved in a different fashion and the humans wound up being the animals and, and, and the apes wound up being the talking intelligent creatures that you know, that ran that entire that ran that entire planet. And of course they did the same kind of nonsense stuff we did with prejudice and and racism and treating animals bad and polluting the earth and well, in our planet back then. So had some similarities to it, but it kinda of gives you a real scope of of society. The only thing that I found that was dramatically different was there was a religious overtone to a Pierre Boulez book in Planet of the Apes that was completely not present. Remember, um, Sterling was not an atheist, but he was not a religious person at all. And not at all. And never even made any real allusion to it. Unless he was using it in some kind of manner of uh, that it could be used in a presidential fashion. That's about it. So I would say a more legalistic social way, but nothing beyond that. So he took that out uh, of the uh, the script, well, out of the book and, and into the script. That's simply not there. The religious overtone from Pierre's book is pretty much alludes to the fact that like God had gave up on earth because people were just so stupid and disappointing and simply decided to redo 
his uh, his plan for for life on another planet and to start using apes instead of humans. And then you know the book went from there. So that was sort of the theme in a way for the book, where the movie, of course, never went that way at all. The movie's theme was instead of God punishing us, we punish ourselves. Literally through nuclear war, gotten to the point where we we mutated the next evolutionary rung to us to become the dominant force in the planet, and we pretty much went back to being, you know, voiceless, uh, you know, morons that walk around in the forest half naked. Of course, you know, when the astronauts come back, you know, they're from a different time, so you know they they can speak, and you know. Wondering what the hell's going on. So, he wrote that screenplay. So, it's an incredible piece of work. It really is. It's a true classic of science fiction. And, of course, um, in his own wonderful Rod Sterling, Twilight Zone kind of way, uh, he, he made it a big social epic as well. There's so much to learn about people working together, about, about social prejudice, about the stupidity of war. The consequences of war, definitely. You know, and of course, uh, the shock that um, you're not going back to your earth anymore. You're not going back to your home anymore. You know, you now um, got to figure out how to build another world. One half-naked dude and some chick who looks good but can't even speak. What a way to go tell you also he wrote and maybe it's a precursor to you know the modern days but in 1972 uh, Sterling wrote and remember this is only three years before he died he got a chance to write the screenplay for a book it's called The Man and that was the name of the movie The Man and it was with um, the guy that was the voice from Darth Vader uh, James Earl Jones. <laughs> That's the only way I remember his name. Otherwise, I can't remember his name sometimes. Um, he winds up through a, a number of, um, I think, uh, plane crash or accidents or something like that, winds up becoming the first black president. And all that you would have to go through, <laughs> through society and your know, cabinet and everything and all the imagine you have to go through in 1972. So he wrote the screenplay for that. That's pretty incredible. Uh, it really, I think, nailed many things. I wouldn't make any Obama uh, comparisons because um, the president in that particular book uh, really um, was in a society that was far more racially divisive than the one that Obama came into. I'm sure there are plenty of people that think they're going to dispute me on that, but the truth of the matter is is that uh, 1972 in America was not the same as when Obama was elected. They were different Americas. So it, it was warranted the kind of writing that it did. So other than that, you know, I could see somebody making some kind of comparison. And that's fine. Now, he did a number of other screenplays. Uh, one of the ones that I really liked uh, a great deal was a Requiem from a Heavyweight. It was about a boxing movie. And it was really, really wonderful. He knew a lot about boxing. I, I think if there was a couple of things that Rod Sterling really knew a lot inside and out was war, boxing, 
and, and, and prejudice. I, I think he knew a great deal about those subjects. And he, in many ways, I think he felt that if he was not just, you know, an expert, I would say, on, on those, he definitely felt the most comfortable about writing of those. If you were to, like, watch every episode of The Twilight Zone, I would say, because I have a couple of times, I would say that even without counting all 156 episodes, I mean, at least half, if not more, had some kind of angle on prejudice. Now, I, and I thought that Rod Sewing was definitely right about this. He had felt that it wasn't just racial prejudice that we had to deal with. I mean, he, he, he just didn't think that was it. That was it in, in, a, in a nutshell. In many instances, he went much more broader than that to the human condition itself that just our faculties from our fear and maybe even from our faulty instincts, that prejudice really damaged the human species and that until we found the way inside the human condition to fix as much as possible that prejudice, we were going to be doomed to always being divided on something or another. Doomed. That's how he felt. That's why he wrote the way he wrote. Because he didn't think it was going to go away so easily. And he was right. Because you know, you won't have to admit it to me. You don't even have to admit it to your, to your friends. But you know that there are plenty of people that you know that say, hey, I'm cool with black people. I just don't like those gay people. Or, you know, I'm down with the gay people, but um, I'm not really uh, hip with those uh, transgender people. Or my favorite one. Hey, I got no problem with blacks and Hispanics. It's just the Jews I don't like. Rod Sterling knew that it wasn't just about racial prejudice the world was facing. It was prejudice in general. Until we figured out a way to cross all those barriers to have enough understanding to not practice that anymore we were never going to be able to fix the human condition he knew that and that's what he was trying to write about and it's evident from what I'm telling you right now it completely is now I'm not an impractical person I'm not an unrealistic person and I wouldn't tell somebody you know you need to go over there talk to that transgender person understand all the stuff about them and somehow you're going to magically not be afraid of them or think they're strange. No. Not only do I not think you need to do that, I don't think it's necessary. All I think that is necessary is you leave things as they are and that you don't spend your time mocking the person, trying to harm the person. Right now in Atlanta, I think they have six transgender people murdered. I don't even know what kind of investigation they're doing. And I'm not here to to make fun of the police or, or say that they don't care. But I know historically that police don't even do a good job on murders of prostitutes. So what do you think they're going to do about transgender people? People understand them even less than prostitutes. So I can't see historically my feelings that anyone's doing any kind of real tracking down of this killer. We don't know. Are there random killings? 
or is it the same person just targeting transgender people and murdering them? I tell you what we do know though, is that until we can figure out how to accept something like that, this is what happens. It brings people to this this stage, unfortunately. Not that they might not be suffering from some kind of mental illness or some kind of violent tendencies and it mixes into that. I'm sure that's true as well. But that's all that needs to get done. If people would accept that, and I don't mean accept that, that again, they need to bring them over to a cocktail party or they need to play cards with them every other week. I mean, just saying, all right, that's who they are. I don't particularly understand it, but I'm not going to hate them and go have a good day, transgender person or black person or Jewish person or whatever. If people did that, they wouldn't have to feel all this undue pressure of, I got to be an expert on um, everybody black or I can't not be a bigot. No, you, you don't. You just don't have to look at them as something so different that it has to be a problem. That's all the man was ever trying to say in his shows and his writings. It's what we need to do, you know, on a global scale. You know, imagine what we did. I joked the other day, and it was just a joke, but, you know, sometimes my jokes have uh, sometimes some usefulness in them. You know, I was talking about COVID. I was in the bathroom with somebody, and uh, I'm over there using the hand sanitizer. Uh, it's actually a uh, hand soap. Uh, you know, in in the sink, and I said, you know, you know, if we had, uh, you know, um, less hate and more hygiene, imagine how much better this world would be. So many less dead people and so many less hated hearts. And we, the guy laughed. He was in. I was with the guy. Was, we were laughing about that. Just thought it was kind of cute and clever, you know. But you think about it, there's a lot of truth to that. That's what he was talking about. This is the reason why. His shows could have an impact because they are simply talking about those surface fears that if we could figure out how to manage, how to eventually weed out to a certain extent out of our system, people would be less prejudiced and therefore less to go on to some of these silly things like bigotry, like hatred, like open discrimination, like physical violence like literally starting entire political systems based on hate, you know, like like Soviet communism or, you know, German Nazism or Italian fascism, things like that. Because that's where they come from. They come from that little grain of prejudice. That person is different from me. Therefore, I must first be afraid and then therefore I must also figure out, well... If I'm afraid, maybe it's because something is wrong with them. It never occurs to the person in their human condition, and this is what we learned from Rod Sterling in his shows, that maybe there's something wrong with us when we first receive that fear. Because what are we doing? Are we doing anything constructive? Hey, that person looks different than me. Maybe I should go over there and talk to them. Find out what they're all about. What's going on with that headdress? What's up with that tattoo? What's going on with that scar? What's up with that earring? This, that, whatever. Instead of being fearful but curious, we want to be fearful but defensive. And then as we go along the logic 
of the defensiveness, it grows. Maybe they're evil. Maybe I'm superior. Maybe I'll get a weapon and bop them over the head. Maybe I'll just kill them one day and put them in the oven. That's where all this goes, folks. It's just that simple. It might not sound that simple. It might sound like, oh, that's kind of distilling and all. No, it's just really that simple. I mean, this is how they handle it in Nazi Germany. One moment, the Jewish guy is a hero from World War One, Iron Cross and all kinds of wonderful uh, awards of bravery. Germans who are not Jews saying, yeah, he saved my ass. He did this. He did that. Not even three years later, films about the Jews being rats and a disease that has to be removed from society. Suddenly, oh no, we got to kill him. What the hell happened in three years? Well, we can have a whole story on the, on, on this uh, podcast about that. But in the end, it doesn't take that much to go from looking at somebody as the other to looking at them as the alien, to looking at them as the monster, to looking at them as the vermin, to looking at them as the disease, and then suddenly you're the cure. It doesn't take that much. Germany wasn't some backward society. They were one of the most advanced societies on earth. Meaning that the most, one of the most civilized. A country full of brilliant people. And, and uh, some poverty and economic collapse. And, and this is what they become. A nation of monsters. Sure, a short period of time, but still enough to destroy perhaps 40 million people when you combine everybody together. Imagine that. Just from some words that became thoughts, that became ideas, that became plans, that became actions, that became ashes. It's just that simple. If we're able and capable of doing these things. These wasn't special monstrous people. Hitler. A failed artist. A, a, a military hero in his own right. Went a different direction with that. Didn't have to go that direction. But that's what he chose to do. Hitler. A man who was not. Inflicted with a mental illness. The excuse they made with him for a long time. Hitler was not mentally ill. He knew that he was lying. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He made sure they had all kinds of mechanisms to protect themselves because he knew what he was doing was monstrous. He still did it anyway because in the end, that's all he had to go on and to make people to follow him was that kind of hate. Sterling was trying to save us from that sort of stuff with his shows. And I think in many ways... He had an impact on people. After they finished canceling uh, the Twilight Zone, he went on to uh, another show. This show would probably be more similar to the horror type of show that you would have that ultimately it failed after the third season called The Night Gallery. He did some narration. He did some shows that he wrote of that. But it was more of the trick of the, the ending kind of show 
you know, the the gimmick kind of show. It wasn't bad. It was a lot of good ones. I, there was a, a couple of really ones I remember that I really liked. But most of them were just forgettable type shows, unfortunately. Nothing like the, the Twilight Zone. Because there was nothing like the Twilight Zone before or after it. They've had all these different remakes. And I, I tell them I wish they'd just go back home and just stop trying to do that. You're not going to narrate like him. You're not going to write like him. You don't have his kind of passion. You certainly don't have his kind of vision. So I don't know why they keep doing it other than probably just for the the money involved in it because it it doesn't really add anything to what he was doing. Just show the reruns. That's all we need. That's all we need from that man. One of the, definitely one of the greats. Just imagine being trapped in a mind of seeing how the world can be better, but you can't get your own world better because it's always filled with a bayonet jammed into your gut from a Japanese soldier that's trying to kill you on a regular basis. That was the substance of most of his nightmares. I mean, he was shot. He wound up uh, getting the, the bronze star for saving civilians from a a Japanese attack which I think in many ways uh, he he probably felt was probably more to his liking than if he got it from killing people which I'm definitely sure he did and I'm definitely sure that he was the kind of person that he wouldn't have been so proud of the medal if he had to kill somebody for it versus having to save somebody for it he was just one of those personalities like that everybody's different and that's who he was. A sensitive soul? Yeah, I would say that would be true. A tough man? No doubt about that. A real a real family man in, in every way of, the, of the, the word. In fact, his daughter, Anne Sterling, she wrote a memoir about him. It was called As I Knew Him. And unlike many people who wrote memoirs about their famous parents... This is one thing that rang true. It was authentic. It was well, well received. I remember Robert Redford having an incredible quote about, you know, how how beautiful and how astounding the book was. And I'm not really surprised because when you learn so much about him and he was very dedicated to his family, even though he might have had some, you know, marital um, imperfections, he loved his family. And he he made room for them and he made sure that he did everything he could for them. More than just financially. He understood the impact of being around because he had a great, you know, set of parents himself. And I think that really pressed upon him. And she wrote some really beautiful things about him. And I think that one of the things I took from that memoir that, that I found, you know, quite, quite beautiful was how... When he died, and he died early, it, you know, it put her into a, a, a bout of depression, and she had to some seek some therapy. And many times, she sat at his tombstone talking to him, and you know, just trying to get back his spirit. Until later on, she got married and found a lovely fellow, and you know, had her own family, and then realized that, you know, she didn't need to visit his tombstone. To visit his memory because he was always going to be with her. And I really think that in many instances, you know, Rod Stilling is always going to be with us. Even beyond the Twilight Zone. 
there's always something special about him. How he narrated the shows, the look he had. You know, he looked at you like, I'm about to smack you in the head with some with some heavy info. And you're going to sit there and take it. He just knew something about our curiosity. I, I, I read on a number of instances, he get a lot of hate mail. People just being racist beyond belief. Or anti-even Jewish against him. And he always remarked on, but they keep watching the show. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I don't mean to laugh at hate, but sometimes uh, that's what you have to do if you're going to um, read such mail or understand on why you're receiving such mail and they're still watching. I don't know what they're watching. Are they watching you to finally agree with their hate? Because that's never going to happen. Why? Well, because I still think that even people who have those ideas, have those feelings, still have some humanity inside of them. Something that tells them this isn't right. But they don't know how to express that. They don't know how to take that out of their own closet. They don't even know if they're in a family structure or even a society structure from where they're at that's going to allow that. It takes a lot of bravery to break out of that kind of bigotry to be the person that you should be. So we always need to applaud those that are able to do so because I'm sure it's not an easy task. And I always think that was a bad idea. You know, I mean, unless we physically have to restrain somebody to do something, I don't never think it's a good idea to beat up on bigoted people all the time. I mean, if you want to try to educate them, you want to try to bring them back over to the side they should be at, you know, um, calling them names or mocking them, it doesn't really help. I don't see how that, that you know, they, they just wake up one day, you know, He's right. I'm just a horrible bigot. I need to stop this. I mean, no one's going to think that way. You know, if we want the world to be full of love, if we want people to be more compassionate to each other, well, we need to practice that too. And that means even practicing compassion to the neo-Nazi or the Klan's person or whatever strange militant group that's out there, you know, that, that believe... Uh, you know, this person is going to, or this group of people are going to take down the world. You got to figure out a way to be compassionate to those people too. Not in a way that gives them license to their stupidity, but in a way that says, you don't have to be that way. There are other things you could see if you let yourself see the rest of the world, or you let yourself see what's going on. That's how I always described in my own personal view, Rod Sterling, is that in many ways he suffered from the night terrors for the twilight zone, as he called it, that post-traumatic stress, because he knew burying it would be a bad idea. It would only internally eat him inside. He knew that he had to live through it every night. He had to live through it through his writing. He had to do whatever he can to have that shiny face to his family when there's probably days where, you know, he hated his life as much as he loves his family. To have the brave face when you probably only just want to crouch in a bottle someplace. It's really a bravery beyond anything the military could have gave him. And it certainly is a testament more 
to his humanity and even his creativity than any Emmy Award or any other award he would have gotten and did get. He left us way too soon because he was a workaholic, smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. I read that on his second heart attack, he said, we must have the open heart surgery. When they had open heart surgery in 1975, it was still a relatively new procedure. It wasn't so routine as it is now. There was a lot of things they didn't know and what to expect. Now, when they have open heart surgery, they'll make sure they have a, a, a spare artery they'll take from your leg, ready to go. Then they didn't realize they can open up his artery, try to repair the artery through a stitch, and then the whole artery collapses before their eyes because it literally disintegrated when it reached air because that's how brittle his entire complex was from all of the smoking, all of the stress, all of the depression, all the things that he pounded his body through the overwork. He literally killed himself by working and smoking. I mean, Shirley Jackson did the same. Lots of writers did before they even got to addiction, which ironically she didn't have and neither did he. But he just didn't know that back then. If he could have only lasted five or six more years, the procedure would have been more standard. They might have been more prepared. Maybe he could have survived. I don't know. I mean, because he'd have to really change his, his lifestyle and stop smoking. I don't even know Rod Sterling without a cigarette. That's that's how much it's a part of his image. But it killed him, for sure. And it took away somebody that, you know, the world needs. I'm glad he left this legacy for all of us. I'm glad he served his country. I'm glad he loved his family. I'm glad he decided to be brave enough to write and even more brave to make it to the next day after what he went through that night. That's that's a writer for you. That's a man for you. That's a veteran for you. And that's definitely a hero for you. Rod Sterling. One of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Definitely one of the most important social writers we've had in any medium. You can't really put too many people next to him. I mean, really. If you think about it, he's literally up there with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, and some of the other important social writers of the 20th century. Literally, this guy is. People don't realize that until they even just watch a couple of shows and go, man, I didn't catch that depth. I didn't really get all that. I was just kind of going for the fun gimmick or the you know, the little special effect or whatever they did. Because a lot of great actors in that show he brought through. So a lot of great writers as well. He really started off the careers for so many people. All right, folks, that is it. Rod Sterling. Thoughts about Rod Sterling in the Twilight Zone. Episode 156. This is Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. Good night, folks, and God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.